You're listening to Strong Runner Chick Radio, episode 49. Welcome to Strong Runner Chick Radio, a leading online community where our goal is to educate, empower, and connect female distance runners across the world. We believe in healthy running, fueling, and embracing our strength as female distance runners inside and out. Through interviews with top professional, collegiate, and master's level runners, leading dietitians, coaches, sports psychologists, and runners of all shapes and sizes, we hope to spread the message that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to distance running. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, Strong Runner Chicks. Welcome back to another episode of Strong Runner Chick Radio. Today we have with us Heather Kaplan. Heather is a registered dietitian that focuses on intuitive eating and the non-diet approach to nutrition. In her private practice, she primarily works with active women, helping them recover from hypothalamic amenorrhea and eating disorders. Her work has been featured in the Washington Post, Runner's World, Eating Well, and a variety of running and health podcasts. She's also the co-founder of Lane 9 Project and hosts a weekly podcast, RD Real Talk. Or is it Real Talk RD, Heather? RD Real Talk. RD Real Talk, just checking. (laughs) All right. She's also a new mom, figuring out life as a runner, entrepreneur, and writer with a seven-year-old crawling around. Oh, seven-month-old. That's a big difference. (laughs) Seven-month-old crawling around. And she has a dog named Banana. I love that. (laughs) What kind of dog do you have, Heather? She's a mix. We have no idea what she is, but the most common responses we get from other people who feel like they need to weigh in on this is um, maybe a little bit of lab, but mostly border collie and maybe beagle. So she's kind of like small, athletic, thinks she's like five times as big as she actually is. (laughs) Oh, and how old is she around? She just turned two. Just had her birthday. Yeah. (laughs) I say we have two children. She's our first. (laughs) And then your seven-month-old, is that a boy or a girl? Yeah, he's a little boy. His name's Casey, um, and he is, like, suddenly crawling all over the place, and we have no idea what to do with that. It seems, like, very early for him to be crawling, so we're like, what is happening? It's crazy. Wow. That's wonderful. And how has being a mom been? Being a mom has been really wonderful, I feel like, on most days. I'm like, he's so great. I feel like I'm obsessed with him. But there, <laughs> we definitely have our, our other days where I'm like, okay, I'm going to like lose my mind. Um, I stay home with him most of the time. As uh, Megan mentioned, I'm an entrepreneur. So I work for myself and I work from home. So that's been a little bit of a challenge, just kind of finding those boundaries. But um, we do have part-time childcare, which I think is really important to be open about. And um, yeah, we're like just kind of figuring that out. But he's really great. Well, thanks for sharing and congrats again. Um, I I can imagine that being a mother is so exciting, um, but also brings forth challenges that you never anticipate. So it's it's good to be flexible in that realm, I think. Mm -hmm. Coming from someone who doesn't have a child, I act (laughs) like I know what I'm talking about and I have no idea. So yeah, no, I say to everyone, like we were really hesitant to say this at first, like before we had Casey, when we had Banana, we're like, she kind of feels like having a kid. Like we have to take mm-hmm. care of her all the time. I'm like constantly mm-hmm. thinking about her schedule and how long she's been home or like where, if we've 
exercised her or fed her or whatever. Uh, we like took her to classes and everything. And we're like, I feel like having a dog is really similar to having a baby, but maybe we should say that out loud until we actually have a baby. And so now I can say pretty confidently, it is very similar. So <laughs> if you have pets, you kind of know what it's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I would imagine. Megan's dog sat before, so she could probably speak <laughs> yeah, more than I, I can definitely uh, <laughs> relate to that statement. I mean, yeah. I haven't had a kid yet, but I feel like having a pup at home feels like it's a, it's a baby at home. So yeah. Yeah. Especially (laughs) since we got her when she was like very, very young. So we're like, you know, not sleeping and like having to like puppy proof the house and like all the very similar things. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So, um, kind of moving along, we usually start our, our question off with just kind of how you got your start in this field. Um, It can be either in running or just in the field of wellness in general. Yeah, I had an eating disorder in college, which now is pretty well recognized as orthorexia. It's still not something that can be diagnosed. There's a diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. Um, They're actually categorizes mental health issues. So um, orthorexia is not quite on that list yet, but there are people who are working on that. So um, I experienced that in college, which of course I had no idea that that's what was going on. And I thought I was like just being really healthy. And as I look back now, I can definitely see where that preoccupation with food and health kind of stemmed from restriction because that happens a lot. And so I studied nutrition and just wanted to help people be healthier. (laughs) And um, my disordered eating patterns were definitely made a little bit worse or kind of triggered by what I was studying. So that was a hard balance to strike, I guess. Um, And I didn't really recognize it at the time. So in hindsight, I think that's a lot of why I went into nutrition and going into my dietetic internship, I realized like I can't, it doesn't feel good to me to be like talking about weight loss all the time or talking about restrictive diets like that just didn't feel right to me based on what I had gone through. So my career has kind of evolved. Um, I've been a dietitian for almost 10 years now and um, got finally over the last two years, I got into the eating disorder space, which feels kind of full circle for me and feels really good to be doing this work, um, especially with active women. I started running in college and My story with running and eating disorder recovery is kind of the opposite of what a lot of people have experienced. For some people, running can be very triggering because it's a high calorie burn, it's an intense exercise. Um, There are a lot of things about running that can lend themselves to sort of like perfectionist or competitive tendencies. And so that can exacerbate certain disordered eating patterns and a distorted body image. But for me, it was actually the complete opposite. And I found running to be really healing because it felt like I was finally doing something with my body that encouraged me to want to feel stronger and healthier and well-fueled. And so pulling on my nutrition knowledge that I was building at the time, um, I decided, okay, I'm going to train for like a race and use that as a way to evaluate and come into a better place with my relationship with food. And it was really helpful for me. So that really helped me recover over the next couple of years. And I have a great running community in DC. That's like the first people I met when I moved here. So it's all been very reinforcing in terms of recovery and building friendships and building confidence and things like that. 
Um, I'm, I'm actually very shocked to hear one of the first things he said going back a little bit was that orthorexia is not yet diagnosable or it's not mm -hmm. in the, I'm shocked. Like yeah. at this point in time, I think our society and you know better than I do, Heather, is so consumed with being healthy and, you know, having these, you know, thoughts of that, you know, really do boil down to orthorexia, that it's not yet in the DSM or whatever is used to diagnose. It's, it's, yeah. it's like really shocking to me. Right. It's still surprising to me, but I think actually, as I've learned a lot more about eating disorders, there are two eating disorders that you can diagnose now that even like five years ago or six years ago weren't in that DSM-5. Um, so we're getting there, <laughs> but it is definitely for people who don't know, orthorexia is an unhealthy fixation on healthy eating. And it's sort of an ironic eating disorder and that a lot of the rationale within orthorexic tendencies is that if I do this and this and this, I will be healthier and healthier and healthier, or at least that's kind of how it starts and it becomes very obsessive and compulsive and often mm -hmm. drives people into a place where they're very unhealthy, but they don't really recognize that. So uh, it can be, there can be some overlap with other eating disorders. So I think it's going to be kind of hard to isolate orthorexia, but again, a lot of times you differentiate certain eating disorders by the rationale behind the behaviors. So mm -hmm. I think that's where it will kind of stand out. And as you said, we have a lot of people who are really focused on mm. or obsessed with health. So it's certainly something that we see a lot of. Mm -hmm. mm. I can imagine so. Yeah. Um, now, kind of going back to this time, how did you come to kind of to recognize this within yourself? Because you said you came full circle um, in helping others. So do you have any, I guess, just advice for maybe someone that um, may have an eating disorder and doesn't know it or uh, might find this in someone, you know, like a close friend or family member, um, how to kind of start to make change and recognize these signs and symptoms? So I don't really remember the first time that I read about it or saw something about orthorexia, which is weird to me because it seems like that would be a really defining moment. So mm -hmm. I must have kind of started to see more and more about it at some point. And then I think I also just in my mid to late 20s, as I was pretty solid in my recovery, I started looking back and kind of reflecting and realizing how disordered a lot of what I was doing really was. So when I was in college, I would have justified it left and right. I'm studying nutrition. This is the healthy way to eat. This is, we should all be exercising, blah, blah, blah. But when I look back on it now, a lot of it just stemmed down or could be boiled down to like, what could I do to eat fewer calories and exercise more and manipulate my body to stay a certain size. Um, so as I came out of that and I developed a better relationship with food and then started looking back on some of the things I experienced in college, it was like, wow, that was really disordered. And then I somewhere came across orthorexia and was like, yeah, that sounds exactly like what I experienced. Um, and it's, I think because of how much information we are consuming about nutrition and health, it can be really hard to draw that line of like, oh, this is someone who's interested in nutrition and health. And this is someone who's obsessing over it. And so I always say for people, if it's something that consumes your mind like 24 hours a day, like you're always thinking about your next meal, you're always thinking about what you had at your last meal and how maybe you're going to have to balance out your day to make up for something. Like there's just kind of this constant inner monologue with eating disorders. And that's true of, I think, all eating disorders. But with orthorexia, a lot of times it's like, you know, how could, if this meal wasn't 
the perfect vision of health, then how can the next meal be the perfect vision of health? And there's just kind of constantly this inner monologue about food. A lot of times it causes social isolation and that people start to be fearful of going to restaurants or going to someone's house and not knowing exactly how the food is prepared and what's in it and things like that. So if you start to become preoccupied with those kind of things, we do often see a lot of overexercise because it's coupled with this idea of health and that you have to be, you know, this perfect model of health in some way. And then for women, a really clear sign that these habits have gone too far is that you're not having a period. So we've kind of touched on hypothalamic amenorrhea and that's losing your period or not starting your period past the age of 16. So that's usually a pretty clear sign that you're not healthy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are kind of other medical signs that someone could look for, but for friends and family, if you're looking, or even teammates, if you're noticing that someone has started really restricting their food, or they're trying this diet after this diet after this diet, they're trying eliminations, they're doing detoxes and cleanses all the time, like just seem to be really preoccupied and obsessed with this idea of getting healthier and healthier and healthier. That's a pretty big red flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excuse me. And it sounds as though all of those things, it's so hard, like you said, because all of those things could be, you know, taken as you know just truly like someone really just being interested in like when you think about it you know as you know we all are our runners here you know training for a marathon is that over exercise like you know what I mean like when you really think about it you're kind of like is this over like I'm currently taking actually to be honest I'm currently taking a break off of running right now and I look back at like my training and I'm like was I just like way over exercising like is that you know so it's Mm -hmm. that's it's such a fine balance and you speak to very well about that Heather I'm sure um you know that comes from all your experience but it's just it's so interesting and so hard to define which is kind of go back goes back to diagnosing orthorexia what we talked about prior Right. Yeah. And with exercise, I mean, some of the signs you want to look for with people is what are the motivations? You know, I can say like when I ran my first marathon in DC, the the main motivation was all all of my running friends were doing it and I thought I would be left out. So I'm on a marathon, uh, which I don't think is a great reason to do it. I did not have a great experience, but since then I've had lovely, wonderful experiences with marathons. Some really hard, some really fun. But yeah, I ask a lot with clients, especially about their motivation and, you know, what's driving you to run, what's driving you to chase down these challenges. Are you constantly getting injured? Are you always tired? Are you feeling really mm-hmm. sluggish on your runs? You know, like there are kind of ways you can poke and prod to find out if someone is one, like treating their body well enough to really sustain that level of exercise. And so it, it certainly can be healthy for them. Um, are they always striving to do more, more, more and work out faster and run harder and run more miles? Like, you know, you can look for those kind of things. And then again, just like, what's the motivation? If it's solely to manipulate body size, to try to stay a certain size or to um, try to be healthier, 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 like we don't have to run marathons to be healthy. (laughs) It's like, that's Mm -hmm. excessive. You know, Um, there are certainly people who can do it and have a great relationship with running and go on with their lives. But, um, you do see the other side of it as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that makes a lot of sense um, coming from that perspective of like, what's the motivation behind it? I think it's, it's probably really interesting if our listeners or anybody for that matter, you know, really takes a step back and ask them for many areas of their life, you know, what's my motivation behind doing this? Like, is it making me happy? Am I, you know, thriving while I'm doing this? Is it giving me energy or is it taking away from me? You know, so 
I think that's a really great question to bring up, Heather. You know, what is my motivation behind this? Yeah, and I also see that a lot with people who uh, have their hesitations with like the intuitive eating or non-diet approach. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, but if I follow this diet, my running gets faster. I'm like, well, is that your only priority in life for your running to be faster? You know, Mm -hmm. like I think it's great to chase down goals and to have aspirations for yourself and challenge yourself. I think all those things can be great, but there's... Mm -hmm again, it's like really easy to go over that line and to be obsessive. And it's like, at what cost to your life is your running getting faster? (laughs) You know, like, is that really worth what you're putting your body through? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Um, So I want to ask a little bit more about your private practice, because that's something that seems to have flourished quite a bit and something it seems to be very proud, you're very proud of. Um, So you do have a private practice, as I just mentioned, for nutrition, counseling, run, coaching, and consulting. Um, So would you tell us a little bit more about this? Maybe, you know, what was your passion behind creating it? What some struggles you might have had or some tribulations? Um, And then maybe the type of client you'd like to work with. Totally. I thought about opening business for a really long time. I was told in like one of the first interviews I did for nutrition jobs when I had no business owning my own company, someone was like, you have a very entrepreneurial spirit. And I was like, oh, I don't know if that's a good thing in a job interview. <laughs> Didn't get that job. Uh, so I think I've always like, kind of had that in me that I wanted to just work for myself. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. I really enjoy like flexibility. Um, I am a hard worker, but I also like to kind of set my own boundaries. And I've always had like a million ideas of which like 1% come to fruition. So um after having a lot of work experience and then ultimately working in a startup, I, which gave me a lot of great business background, I decided to just pull the trigger and see if I could make it happen. So I started my private practice um, technically like January of 2017. So we're a little over a year and a half into it. And um, a lot of the reason I wanted to do that was to be able to mix some of the things that I really enjoy doing. Like I've been run coaching for a while. Uh, I'm actually wrapping that up soon, but I did run coach for a while. I still have a few clients. Um, I wanted to be able to see the types of nutrition clients that really like felt important to me, like people I was really Mm -hmm. excited to work with. Uh, I like to do some writing. I started the podcast. So like, I'm just someone who likes to have my hands in a lot of things and owning a business and being a freelancer while it has a lot of challenges is really like, I think I'm best suited for that. So Mm. I've kind of written a few posts, I think about some of the challenges that I faced. One is just that there are some things that you think are going to be really easy. And then your ego like gets knocked off of its (laughs) high horse and you realize they're not super easy. Like freelance writing was one of those things for me. I really wanted to freelance write and I have, I've done a lot of it, but um, there were things about it that I thought would be much easier and it's Mm -hmm. really hard. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. like at the mercy of editors and it's hard to come up with ideas. Like that's not really my strong suit. Uh, It has been for my blog, but like that's because I don't, I, you know, that's just me. So um, coming up with like ideas for different publications and matching their voice and writing things that I want to write and feel really passionate about. And then also like getting edits back and being like, oh, ouch. (laughs) Um, So that can be really hard. Um, And then with the private practice clients, you know, you kind of think like, oh, I'll just say that my virtual doors are open and all the people will come and then the people don't come. And you're like, how do I find the people. (laughs) Um, And there are so many like 
lists of things you can do to grow your private practice. And a lot of them, I'm just like, I know I could do that, but I don't really want to do that. And it's Mm -hmm. a lot of like marketing yourself and talking about yourself and putting yourself out there. And it can just be hard to get comfortable with doing all of those things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And also like feeling like you still have a shred of dignity. (laughs) So, uh, so that was hard, but I, I feel like I came into a really good place with it by the end of last year, which was also challenging because Casey was due in January and I was kind of like, okay, I built everything up for a year and then I just, I want to take time off. So I'm going to take time off, but it was really hard to do that mentally because I just really worried about what I was going to come back to. Like if anyone would still be there and if I could write again and like have the energy and the brain space and the time to do that, you know? So I, there was a lot of unknowns going into my like air quote maternity leave. (laughs) Um, But everything's kind of like picked back up faster than it did, you know, from the beginning. So I think like the lesson for me has been when you put the work in and you consistently show up, which I know we hear that from a lot of our running favorites too, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It pays off and people don't forget about you. And, you know, I put a couple of projects into place before I had Casey. So that kind of kept my audience and my community engaged while I was taking time off, which was really helpful. And um, I actually just started a part-time job at GW University here in DC, where I'll be working uh, in eating disorder therapy for college students. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's amazing. They're so lucky to have you. Oh, thanks. It feels like it's only a couple hours a week. It's like very, very part-time, which I thought was really perfect for me. Um, It gets me out of the house. It like gets me with a team of people that I can learn from. And I'm like eating disorders, college, students. Yes. All of those things. I want to do that. So I just got that. That's awesome. And I believe that's where Miranda actually went. Yeah we know is part of SRC and Lane 9 Project. I know Miranda very well. Yes. That's, <laughs> yeah. So she was a runner there. Um, and then she found us through Lane 9 Project, which is also something I do. You know, <laughs> added we we do have questions on that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we yeah. will get into that for um, sure. I just have to say, though, um, for those of you who are listening, um, we, we use a platform called um, Zoom so we can see each other's faces while we're talking. And while Heather's speaking about, you know, her private practice, there's, Heather, there's such joy in your face. Like, you can tell this is what you're meant to do. Like, it's, it's so nice and refreshing to hear that because, you know, sometimes we have people who, like, slog to their job and they're like, oh, I don't really like doing it, but I know I have to do it. So it's so fulfilling for me to hear that this is what's making you happy and you're doing it and you're doing it in a way that's, you know, making you, um, not only obviously happy, like I said, but also, um, making you help, I guess, go about helping others in a way that's fulfilling to you. I think I've said that already, but it's just, you know, I I think it's a really cool thing Mm -hmm. to hear and, you know, for a lot of our listeners to hear that you can, you know, go forth and achieve a goal that, you know, maybe was really, really big, but now you have an idea of it to, you know, kind of bring to fruition even after having Casey, you know, so it's all these wonderful things that have happened, you know, and you didn't know if they were going to. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I say to a lot of dietetic students, I, I think there's a lot of like, gravitas around having a private practice. Everyone's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I aspire to that. And for a long time, I didn't think that I did. Like I identify mostly as an introvert. I just love like talking to people one-on-one and not like in huge groups. 
So I'm like, oh, I don't know. A private practice might just totally drain me at the end of every day. I mm-hmm. might just want to like crawl into bed. And I don't feel that way <laughs> most days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also will tell a lot of students, like I took so much out of all the jobs that I had. Like I could never have done this right away. It's not you know, you don't have anything to pull from if that's like your first, first job. And even the dietitians I do know who go right into private practice or right into building some sort of business that's exciting and um, fulfilling to them, they had previous jobs, like they're a second career dietitian. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for like going into the workforce and working with teams and learning from people and then finding like what really excites you. If I had started my private practice six years ago, I wouldn't be doing eating disorder work. I would have no idea that like, this is what I wanted, you know? So right. here we are. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. And thank you again for sharing all that with us. Um, it sounds like I said, like you're in the right place. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so a major aspect of uh, your practice is being an anti diet dietitian mm-hmm. um, if I said that right um, yeah, it's a mouthful. So, yeah would you I, we've talked about this I believe Megan a little bit um with uh-huh. other guests with Hannah, on, with Meyer, Hannah I who mean, aligns well with lane nine yes, yes. and with um Maggie we talked a little bit about right. this um but if you wouldn't mind you know describing a little bit what an anti-diet dietitian kind of does or you know the background behind that and um maybe any words of wisdom you have for someone who could apply these principles to their everyday life absolutely i will talk about this all day every day oh well <laughs> so, bring it on then yeah um so there are kind of a community of rds who have come into this place where we've realized that putting people on weight loss diets and focusing solely on calories and um, associating weight directly with health doesn't serve anyone. Diets don't work. We know that pretty much as a fact. Um, There's a lot of research that you can find that will say such and such diet worked for the long term. And then you look at what they mean by long term and it's usually one year or maybe two years. Um, That's not a very large percentage of someone's life. So, even in the clients that I had before I kind of came into this space, I would constantly see that restricting calories often backfires, restricting certain foods and food groups often backfires. And at the end of the day, people come back because they maybe will lose weight, but then they'll gain it back. And there's a thing called weight cycling, where if you are on diets on and off and you lose weight, but gain it back and then lose and gain it back, you often gain more than where you were before. So your body starts to just kind of hold on to resources more and more and more the more often you diet. So it's like really backwards. So um, it just didn't feel good to be doing that to people or to even suggest it. And because of my background and my experience with orthorexia, I always had this really uncomfortable sense of talking about calories or talking about restriction because for me it just really didn't feel good. So that was another reason that I really shied away from private practice for a long time is I felt like I just, I can't be putting people on diets. I don't believe in that. And so clearly I can't do private practice. Well, thank God that's not the only way to do private practice. Um, So the anti-diet approach is one, helping people disassociate weight with health. So just because your weight is a certain number doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be healthy. Um, there's something called the obesity paradox where some people in larger bodies are metabolically healthy, meaning they have healthy blood pressure, their cholesterol is normal, their blood glucose is controlled, things like that. Um, whereas the societal assumption and often the medical assumption is that if someone is in a larger body, they're unhealthy. 
no questions mm. asked, you know. Um, and the opposite can be true. Someone can be in a smaller body or skinny or thin and be unhealthy. Like I was saying with orthorexia, like I wasn't get a, getting a period. So how is that healthy? But if you had looked at me and made the assumptions that our culture tends to make about body types, everyone would have thought she's fine, you know. Um, so one is just disassociating weight with health. And then two is helping people come out of that diet mentality. So I follow the principles of intuitive eating, which is a book that was written by two dietitians uh, originally in the late nineties, which I loved. So I'm like, man, they were such rebels. <laughs> that is like, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. That's like diet era, like at its height, you know? Um, and wow. they were like, no, 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 this is nonsense. So um, I follow the principles of intuitive eating for myself and in my work, and it just, it feels really good to help people come into that place where um, the core principles of intuitive eating are really learning to tune back into your intuition. So a lot of it is about self-trust and turning the focus away from a set of rules and a, a diet and turning it back to yourself and assuming and relearning how to trust yourself and trust your hunger signals, trust your fullness signals, trust that you know how to fuel your body best, you know how your body feels best, um, finding exercise that feels good to you, respecting your body. Um, there are like a go down the list, but yeah, so the anti-diet approach is really just, um, again, kind of moving away from the assumption that weight has anything to do with our health and helping people unlearn diet rules so that they can relearn how to trust themselves and come into a better place with food. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a long process. Like I feel like a lot of people think that they're going to go into it and say, I'm going to meet with Heather and, you know, in my first three sessions, we're going to solve all the problems, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe speak to a little bit about that, whether that's true or if I'm thinking it's probably not, yes, but absolutely. you never know. I guess it depends on the person. I have no idea. You're spot on. Uh, and that's <laughs> something that's hard for some people to hear too, because in our diet culture, we assume that things happen really quickly, right? We want the quick fix of like this 30 day program. Um, Right. It's like three week detox, this one month, whatever, you know, like there's just always a time frame to sell you on because everyone wants that quick fix. Mm -hmm. So people get really uncomfortable with the idea that one, there's no end in sight because this is the rest of your life. Like this is the rest of your life learning how to feel more comfortable around food and be able to eat things that you enjoy and not have to constantly be thinking about food. And so, yeah, it does take a long time to unlearn some of those rules. And I always tell people we're just going to take one at a time and we're just going to work on this one food rule or this one diet rule that has become entrenched in your mind and your habits for as long mm -hmm. as it takes. And then we move on to the next. And what happens with a lot of people is that first rule or that first like process of breaking that rule can be really hard and really like emotionally challenging. But then with every process thereafter, like every set of goals thereafter that we work on, it just gets a little bit easier for them. And they start to not only trust the process and trust themselves a little bit more, but they have more confidence in moving away from a diet and moving back into a place where they just don't have to think about that stuff all the time. Yeah. It's very, yeah, I can imagine it's very encouraging. Yeah. So, um, in discussing amenorrhea a little bit more, it's been shown that, and I'm sure you know this, but that um, changes in women's menstrual cycles can be due to stress, nutrition, and exercise. So sometimes it's a combination of the three. What are some common themes or trends that you see with this relationship, especially uh, with the female athlete or the runner? 
So with any change in the menstrual cycle, and we're looking at like stress, nutrition, and exercise, I'll usually say, you know, this can happen due to underfueling or overexercising, but usually it's both. And then that in turn is causing stress to the body. There can be outside sources of stress, like for some people, really big life changes that might provoke a lot of anxiety, like going to college or getting married or changing jobs or changing cities, you know, something that happens in your family, like those things can certainly cause some stress. Um, and so that can contribute, but more often than not, it's, um, an issue of resources that are available to the body. So we call it low energy availability, which means that to your body, you're not taking in enough energy either just alone or as compared to what you're putting out for like sport or activity for your body to maintain every system. So what happens is we have to start shutting things down that are taking energy away from what's going to keep you alive. So I always say, you know, we have a list of things that our body has to do every single day to keep us alive. Like we have to breathe and our brain has to be functioning and our digestive system needs to be working and our immune system has to be working. But our reproductive system, while essential for keeping our species alive, is not essential for keeping us alive. So we can turn off the reproductive system and still be a functioning human. So that's what happens, basically. It's not an essential system. And in the work that I do with people who are recovering from amenorrhea, where a lot of the conversation, a lot of the focus is around providing resources to the body and sending messages that things are slowing down, stress is lower, you know, I do a lot of like, let's talk to your body and like, let's tell it that like resources are available and let's send a really consistent message. Like you can't eat a lot one day and not eat a lot the next day. Like that's confusing, you know? Um, so it's a lot of just kind of increasing that energy availability and decreasing stressors that might be contributing to that condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really like what you just said about, you know, kind of sending messages to our body and kind of being in communication with it because I feel like sometimes we forget to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, it, it's really important to say, I love the word you use, consistent. Um, I think our lives nowadays are so, can be so like all up in the air and all over the place. And we, you know, if we can do one thing to like help ourselves, it's maybe stay a little more consistent with our bodies, mm -hmm. you know, really hear what they're telling us and really try to listen um, and actually listen, not just pretend listen, but actually listen, <laughs> Yeah, uh, which is hard, you know, it's not yeah. an easy thing to do. Um, so I, I think those are really great takeaways for anyone who's listening, you know, mm -hmm. send consistent messages to your body, you know, because it wants them. Right. I, I guess that's what I'm learning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to recovery. And I've a lot of people who come to me, like my ideal client is definitely like the active woman. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to identify as an athlete. Although I say anyone who's active is an athlete. Um, like the active woman who's like, I just don't know where my period went. Like what happened? <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, or like I get a lot of people who are in the phase where they're trying to conceive a baby and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I had no idea I wasn't getting a period or I didn't know this wasn't normal or that it would be hard for me to get pregnant. So like, what do I do now? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of that consistency and, um, Dr. Nicola Rinaldi wrote a book about this called no period. Now what? And I, one thing that I saw on her Instagram recently that I thought was just really lovely was, um, she shared a story about how when she was going through recovery, she like drew little hearts 
where her ovaries are, like just on her hips and was like talking to her body. Like, I know you can recover. Like I believe, you know, and like, it sounds a little cheesy and corny, but I feel like not only the messages we send to our body through our activities and our choices and our food intake, but also like our thoughts, you know, it's a really challenging process to go through recovery and unlearn a lot of behaviors that have become entrenched in our habits. But it's also really hard to recover if you're constantly like thinking negatively or, you know, speaking negatively to your body, um, which a lot of people do, you know, it's kind of like an impulse to um, have those thoughts. So kind of unlearning that process as well. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I, I think that's so, so cool what um, Dr. Rinaldi did. And we did a little bit segment with her about a year ago um, where she wrote a few pieces for us and, um, I, I love that. I think that's so powerful. It may sound yeah. a little silly, I feel like, to people, but I just think developing that connection even more and in any way you can is is wonderful. Right. Well, I think even the fact that, like, it seems silly points to, like, how disconnected we might become with our bodies, True. right? Like, it's mm-hmm. not something I would really think of doing for myself, but I think it's a really nice idea. Like, when I was pregnant, I feel like I talked yeah. to my body more because I'm, like, yeah. talking to someone in my body, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I always had thoughts of, like, why would this be so hard for me if I wasn't pregnant, you know? Like, why right. is it so hard to, like, appreciate and acknowledge what your body does for you and sometimes I hesitate with like causing so much of that dissociation of like you and your body like they are one and the same you know but I think it's like something that we like have to come to peace with Mm, yeah yeah I think what would be really cool for any of our listeners and I just kind of made a challenge to myself while you were saying that but to find a place in your day where um you can you know talk to your body, wherever that is. Maybe that's in the shower. Maybe that's when you're walking to the bus. Maybe that's on your yoga mat. Maybe that's when you're eating your dinner. You know, like I think that would be really cool. And I'd love to hear some listeners how you, you know, find ways to listen to your body and whatever that may be. And, you know, realizing that you and your body are one and the same. I would, I think that'd just be really cool for more people to kind of adopt. I don't do it enough. I'll be honest. So I I just made a challenge with myself to do it more. I love it. I love that. Yeah. So um, recently we had the co-founder of Lane 9 Project on your other co-founder, um, Alexis Fairbanks, as a guest. In February 2017, you two started the Lane 9 Project. For anyone that's listening and doesn't know, what is Lane 9 and what was your passion behind developing this? Yeah, there's one more of us, Samantha Strong. Oh, <laughs> I want to make sure she right. gets a shout out. Of yeah, course. We actually just relocated to Denver, so we feel like our lane nine reach is spreading across awesome. the country. Awesome. Um, so we came together. Um, we met through a project Alexis was doing, and then I met Sam through a running group here in the D.C. area. Um, all kind of connected over the shared experience of the female athlete triad, which for me kind of took a long time to – say or to like think about because as I mentioned earlier like some people don't identify as athletes and I would have put myself in that category since I was never a collegiate athlete Um, but the triad is low bone mineral density or a loss of bone mineral density low energy availability like I was talking about earlier and um, a loss of a period so all of those things we all experience in some way and we had really similar experiences with healthcare providers, um, like friends and family who just didn't recognize the issue or didn't point any significance towards it, especially healthcare providers, which I've since like 
tried to be better about saying, you know, it's not that all healthcare providers don't know about this issue, but the ones that we were in contact with at the time we were experiencing it just never raised any red flags. Like no one ever said, what's going on with you? Or like, why aren't you getting a period? And actually mm -hmm. for Sam, it was very uh, normalized. That was off, often just said like, oh, it's because you're active and just like mm -hmm. brushed off, you know? Um, and I think Alexis kind of the same thing. Like she was a collegiate runner. So it's like, oh, well, that's just what happens when you're a runner. And that's not true. Um, so for anyone listening, it's not just something to like accept and feel is normal. And then for me, a lot of times, like I would just go into the doctor and I didn't have a period regularly for six years. So mm -hmm. I was on and off birth control, which really throws off your answers to those questions. Um, but if I had been off of it for a while and couldn't really think of the last time I had a cycle, they'd always just say, are you pregnant? And I'd say no. And we would move on, like no further questions, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so we were frustrated by that. And then by like kind of coaches not recognizing or thinking to ask about these issues or bring awareness to them. So first and foremost, we thought like we can start connecting with coaches and healthcare providers and running communities to just raise awareness to like one normalize talking about these things. Like most people don't want to say period or menstrual cycle or um, amenorrhea, or they don't have that language. You know, they've maybe never even heard of amenorrhea. So we wanted to normalize it. We wanted to give people a platform to talk about it. So we, on our blog, uh, lane9project.org, we share people's stories. So people either write personal essays um, as themselves or anonymously and share their stories and their experiences. And it ranges really a lot of, like we have a wide spectrum of how people have experienced amenorrhea, either through running or other sports or just over-exercise and disordered eating habits that um, some have been diagnosed, some haven't, some have been chronic, some haven't. So we try to share a variety of stories. And mm. one of the things we really try to get across is that these issues affect a variety of people. You know, it's not just thin people. It's not just runners. It's not just endurance athletes. Um, there are issues that can pop up within, you know, anyone that might be disordered or that might cause amenorrhea. So if you feel like, you know, oh, I don't know if this applies to me because X, Y, Z, like just stop it because, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, um, we're trying to just kind of bring those stories to people so that they feel less isolated and they have kind of an answer for what they're experiencing and then a course of action to go from there. Yeah, we got a lot of um, similar, you know, response from Alexis when she told us about this. And so we want to thank you for sharing your experience as well, because it's both, both are, are different and, but both are, have a lot of the same, you know, concepts. And I think, um, you know, you touch upon, you know, speaking, um, normalizing the issue and, you know, saying period and like all that sort of right. stuff. And um, it, I think the, that's only going to make it a, such a better community for, you know, those who are younger than us um, and are coming through experiences like this. So um, thank right. you for yeah. all that you've done. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think at some point we saw a survey of coaches that was kind of old, like a couple of years it was like somewhere around only 10% of them knew what the female athlete triad was. And like, these are coaches wow. who are coaching women. <laughs> we're like, how yeah. is that possible? That's crazy. You know? So we're working on that. But um, yeah, I think what's been really powerful for us is just the community that has formed around that and women who are like, oh, I thought I was the only one experiencing this. And there's a lot of shame wrapped up in that, right? Like yeah. a lot of 
not knowing who to talk to about it, not knowing how to approach it, not knowing what to do to try to recover. So we're just trying to, I don't want to say normalize it in the sense that like, oh, it's okay, everyone gets it, you know, <laughs> like not like that, but just yeah. that it's okay to come forth and like say those words out loud and to ask for help and to talk to people mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, definitely. So for um, those, oh, sorry, Hi, Meg. <laughs> you got it, girl. Uh, we had a reader question on <laughs> nutritional advice to help female athletes regulate their periods. Um, additionally, this kind of ties in, but just also how should young runners feel like in terms of cross country racing? Um, so this can apply to female athletes of all ages. Yeah, one of the first things I work on with runners that may seem very simple, but for a lot of people is um, changing their ways, eating before, sometimes during, and after every workout. No workout goes fasted, especially, especially during recovery from amenorrhea. It could be two miles, it could be one mile, it could be 10 minutes, it could be 60 minutes. I really don't care, but the main thing we need to do is send, again, that consistent message that resources are available, that you're giving your body what it needs in order to be active instead of just assuming that it's going to function in a fasted state. Um, you know, a lot of athletes will kind of counter that with like, well, I read that blah, blah, blah is best when fasted or blah, blah, blah is fast when I, or best when I'm eating only fats or like whatever the right. research might have been that they saw at some point in their lives or what someone said to them flippantly and they held on to it as truth for years to come. Um, I always just say the most important thing is to eat before, during, and after a workout so that we're not, if you're staying active through recovery, which I, I'll get to here in a minute, if you're staying active, the most important thing is that you're supplying the energy that your body needs to su sustain that activity level and also turn back on all the systems that it needs to function, um, the reproductive system being a big one. So... For a lot of people, my first recommendation really is to either significantly cut back on exercise or stop it altogether. Just for a little while, not forever. Exercise is always gonna be there, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> um, the other thing is really balancing food intake and eating a variety of foods. So those might seem like really simple things, but um, I see so many people who come to me with like, oh, I've eaten low carb for 10 years, or mm -hmm. I don't eat gluten because I read once it was bad for me, or whatever the food rule might be. So um, I try to have a lot of empathy for all of those stories because one, I've experienced a variety of them myself while I was studying nutrition and like had a disordered relationship with food. But two, I know that we are constantly inundated with nutrition information. So it's really hard to know like what's best for you and what's best for like your lifestyle. Um, so really undoing a lot of those rules and making sure that the person is eating consistently throughout the day, fueling their activity level if they choose to stay active um, and also being open to reducing or stopping activity for a little while and then getting a variety of food. And that means like everything you can think of not just like a variety of fruits and vegetables not just a variety of grains like every food you can have like all the things you can think of um that includes like eating cupcakes eating cakes eating donuts eating pizza eating burgers eating fries like all of the things and just kind of bringing that normalcy back to food mm. um i guess there was also a question about like female cross-country runners yeah. specifically. So again, I would just say like fueling before and after workouts. If your workout's longer than an hour, eating something during the workout and making sure you're hydrating during the workout is really important. Um, and I mean hydrating with electrolytes, not just with water. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
I think one thing that people really forget about is honoring their hunger levels throughout the day and on rest days. That's really important. Um, so a lot of young athletes have a hard time with eating normally on rest days or eating the same way on rest days that they do on active days. So I work a lot on like erasing the idea that you have to earn that food because your body is functioning every day, no matter what, and your body always needs energy in order to function. So um, that can be a really important one too. Yeah, definitely. It seems as though these are all super important topics to cover, especially because a lot of them are ones in culture that, you know, you get messages about like the fasting before Right. workouts and stuff like that. That's a really big thing. Um, I think one of the uh, readers, if I remember correctly, um, asked if there were any, I think this is like a, a very big topic now that there are specific foods you need to eat to um, regain your period or something along those lines. And I don't know if that is, you know, I guess maybe it goes back to eating all different types of foods or if you have anything to say to that, because um, that's another one that we hear a lot of, of like, oh, well, you have to eat, you know, eight avocados in a day or whatever, <laughs> you know, like uh, tons yeah. and tons of fat or whatever. So yeah. Um, yeah. what your take on that might be. So there are not specific foods that are going to help you recover in terms of like, oh, if you eat like English muffins with almond butter, you'll recover, <laughs> you know, right. um, nothing like that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't point to any specifics because I think that kind of fuels like the food rule mentality. Mm -hmm. um, I would go back to really the basics, like eating a balance of all nutrients. Um, mm -hmm. Carbohydrates definitely should be the majority of what we eat, like carbohydrates should make up about half of our food intake. But with my clients, I'm really cautious to use numbers or percentages mm -hmm. because often with the people I work with, the tendency is to focus on those really intently and then, um, you know, try to hit those numbers really specifically or something like that. So I always say for runners, like you should have carbs at every meal. And with your snacks, you want to have like combination foods, like carbs, protein, fats, and things like that to make sure that you're getting a variety. So uh, most people incorporate proteins and fats into meals just naturally. Like if you're eating animal sources of protein, you're getting both of those things. If you're eating avocados and different types of like beans and vegetables. Um, but for some reason, carbs tend to be the thing that we restrict pretty often. So I always make sure we're doing carbs at every meal. And that can be just like a really easy way to sort of meal plan and like think about what to eat throughout the day. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. I think those are, that's kind of just a perfect quick tip that people can take away mm -hmm. without getting too in depth. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, um, we always wrap up with some fun questions, unless you have any other follow-ups, Kels. No, I don't. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Well, we kind of alluded to it in the beginning, but um, congratulations on having your first child. How exciting to be a mom. Um, we wanted to know what has having a child, what has having a child taught you um, and what do you hope to teach him as he gets older? Oh, having a child has taught me um, that it's okay to shift your priorities and that might be something you do on a daily basis. <laughs> um, and also that one thing I tell myself a lot is don't let perfect get in the way of good. And I wish I knew who to attribute that quote to, but I don't. Um, it's something I've written in my journal a couple of times. And so sometimes when I'm flipping through it, I'll come back to that. Because there are a lot of days that feel really far from perfect, both from like a parenting perspective, um, like baby behaviors, 
why is he crying more this day than the other day? Why is he sleeping more this day than the other day? So um, it can be really easy to hone in on those things and feel like, oh, if every day is not the same, I must be doing something wrong and overlook a lot of the really fun things. Like when we learn new games and he was like, can't stop laughing. Or like yesterday, he like literally fell over backwards laughing so hard. <laughs> and I was just like dying. I mean, he was on a bed, so it was fine. But I was like, oh my God, that was amazing. Um, so yeah, don't let perfect get in the way of good. I tell myself a lot. I tell myself that a lot to like appreciate that like the days are not perfect, but they're mostly good. Yeah. Um, oh, I have so many things I hope to teach him. I strongly identify as a feminist. So I hope to teach him a lot of those ideals and also just that he can do whatever he wants. We have this book. It's called What Wonderful Things You Will Be. It's so, so cute. The illustrations are amazing. And what I love most about it is that there are, they kind of reverse a lot of the gender norms. So like in the illustration, there's like boys gardening and boys sewing and like girls being doctors and girls being veterinarians. And like, I mean, it goes both ways. Like there are boys and girls doing lots of different things, but I love that book so much because I'm like so overwhelming to think of all the things you have to try to teach your kid. But one of them is just like, you can do whatever you want. Like you don't have to go into like these these norms or like these stereotypes and you know if you want to play sports you can play sports and that's great but I think that's gonna be one of the biggest challenges of parenting but I hope it's yeah. something that we're able to teach him somehow <laughs> oh I, I just adore that and um if you don't mind what was the name of that book again I think it's called what wonderful things you will be okay I'm gonna put that in the show notes listener oh, so um, I like want it for myself like that yeah. sounds great <laughs> okay what wonderful things you will be. All right. Awesome. Um, so as we begin to wrap up, we have two questions that we um, really like to ask our guests. Um, so the first one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would tell myself it's okay to ask for help. I spent a lot of years being way too independent. And especially like when I talk about my story with orthorexia and amenorrhea, like I just never thought who could help me? I thought like, how do I recover from this myself? So something I tell everyone I work with, I think we try to insert that theme a lot in lane nine and what we put out to our community. Um, and it's something I would definitely tell my younger self. Mm. That's a good one. I don't think anybody said that yet. Um, for advice you give to your younger self. What do you think, Meg? I don't think so either, but that's a really important one and one I'm working on too. <laughs> Something I learned the hard way in business for sure. So oh, yeah. all assets, business, parenting, running, like all mm -hmm. of the things. Everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, the next question we always ask is, what does being a strong runner chick mean to you? Ooh. I would say that it means chasing down things that feel important to me, but always staying true to myself. Um, so I have like some pretty lofty running goals that I've been chasing for a long time. And sometimes I go back and forth with like, are they ruining my life? I like always chasing down these goals, but um, they keep me really motivated. And to me, like staying strong just means like being there for myself mentally, emotionally, and physically. And um, not ever discounting any one of those pieces and then challenging myself in a way that feels like healthy and motivating and fun. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, what's one of your running goals? <sighs> you learned me in, Heather. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm very, I talk about it all the time, but to run Boston, and I've qualified a few times, but never fast enough. Like, you know, if you, it's so hard to explain to people yeah. who like, one, don't care about Boston yep. or don't know about Boston, but there ends up being a cutoff of time because there's so many people who register now. So you can qualify, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get in. Um, so I've qualified twice and missed it by like 30 seconds, which is not uh, nothing. I'm like, I don't think I have those 30 man. seconds in me. Like, yeah, that's uh, and it's been a few years since I've even tried. So getting back to that, which I'm working on now with the coach that I really love, um, Mary Johnson. So we'll see. But every year I watch Boston on my computer and I'm like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know? It's coming. It's, yeah. yeah, it's Sunday. Uh, um, we're actually interviewing Mary in about a week. So we'll awesome. um, have to mention that we chatted with you a bit. Yeah, She's yeah. like a great coach from what I hear. She's amazing. I saw her, she was in DC a couple months ago and it was like right before I started running again postpartum. So I gave myself quite a bit of time. I did not run right as I could have, um, which I was like good for you off on a soapbox about, but anyway, <laughs> I waited, I think about 12 or 13 weeks and I was, I've been working with her cause her runners often like come to me for nutrition stuff. So anyway, we were meeting for lunch and talking about postpartum stuff. And then I just kind of looked at her. I was like, you've got your work cut out for you. (laughs) Have fun. Like we have a long way to go because I'm starting Uh from ground zero, but Uh yeah, she's been amazing. I just saw in that what you just said actually reminded me of a quote I saw on Instagram today. Um, Neely Spence Gracie um, put put out a quote. I'll see if I can find it really quickly about building oneself up back from the beginning because she just had a baby like three weeks ago or something along those lines, I believe. Um, And so I thought that kind of speaks quite a bit about what you um, were just talking about. Let's see. Yes. She said, never be afraid to fall apart. It presents an opportunity to rebuild yourself the way you wish you'd been all along. So it kind of applies to what you're talking about, but you haven't really fallen apart, but still the rebuilding <laughs> process. <laughs> yeah, no, like some of the postpartum weeks can certainly feel like your body has fallen apart and like forgotten where the organs are supposed to go. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, any, I want to thank you, Heather, for, for yeah. joining us tonight. Um, do you have any other words of wisdom, shout outs, or anything else you'd like to say to wrap up our, our episode tonight? Um, yeah, I guess if you heard anything here that like sounds a bell for you or sounds really familiar to you, um, I, I always want people to know that like living with a diet mentality or living with an eating disorder is not how you have to live. And there are people out there who can help you. Just don't be afraid to ask for that help. Um, you don't have to fit any certain mold or any list of criteria perfectly in order to be diagnosed with the eating disorder. There are certain criteria, of course, but, um, you know, the experiences really run the gamut. So don't be afraid to reach out and you're not alone. Um, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. And one last thing too, if um, a listener has, would like to contact you, I don't know if you're taking clients or, you know, what's going on. Cause you know, you, you are, you are busy with child um, <laughs> right now. Who's cr- as Megan says, a seven year old that's crawling around yeah, right now. Around um, everywhere. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, um, um, how can they reach out to you just even if they want to ask a question or tell you how awesome you are? <laughs> yeah, totally. My website is heatherkaplan.com. It's Kaplan with a C. Um, I'm Heather DCRD on Twitter and Instagram. So pretty easy to find on the internet. Awesome. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you again, Heather, and we appreciate your time.
Yeah, thank you both yeah, so much. Thanks, Heather. All right. All right. Oh, check. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> thanks again for tuning in to another episode of SRC Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode and feel free to connect with Heather or Lane 9 Project uh, as to how you can become a part of it. So thanks. Thanks for listening to the Strong Runner Chicks Radio. Do us a favor and leave a review in iTunes to help spread awareness and foster the SRC community. Additionally, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Strong Run Chick.